Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. I want you to stop and pause, folks, because what is important buried in the Bloomberg terminal and of great use is the track record of people. He is in the 97th percentile of three-year performance, and in last year's tumult, defeated the Standard & Poor's 500 by what's called 731 basis points. That's 7%-plus outperformance off SPX. He is so alone, well, he has time to come on with us. Andrew Slimman joins Senior Portfolio Manager at Morgan Stanley. Let me look back, Andrew. How did you do that in 2021? Well, I think what really worked for us was to most people own too many growth stocks and starting to increase the exposure to stocks and owning some energy and and financials uh, that that really distinguished. Look, I think the S&P has become a growth index. Top 10 stocks are largely growth stock, uh, Mm -hmm. tech stocks. So uh, tacking away from that. Uh, and being overweight, some of the value areas in a year where they're working, and they certainly are so far. Uh, that you know that that right. you can drive. You- and you know, look at the end of the at the end of the seventies. The top ten stocks were energy stocks, and now the top ten are tech stocks. So I think it's a it's a great opportunity for active management. You published this morning that what we're seeing here in our international relations and our fractured moment-to-moment focus is a buying opportunity. Why is that? Well, look, because if you look at 10% corrections, uh, on average, 12 months later, you're up a lot. Even if they morph into much uh, worse, worse than ten percent corrections, about half of the ten percent corrections become fifteen percent corrections, and a quarter of the ten percent corrections become twenty percent corrections. But even if you look out a year, if you bought down ten percent, it might get ugly earlier, which I think it will this time again. Uh, a year later, you've been well served to step up into those corrections. Andrew, you just were talking about the importance of active management. We've been talking about the churn under the surface, some big winners. I'm thinking of energy, some big, big losers. I'm thinking of certain tech stocks. What do you buy if this is a buying opportunity? Well, I think you stick. Well, so look, uh, on the surf, I'm really changing my tune a little bit since I've been on last year. I was on and I kept saying, look, the Uber, the the real high flying growth stocks are too expensive, but I don't think the quality growth stocks are as expensive. Well, you know what? Those high flying growth stocks have come down so much and they actually the quality growth stocks have held in there that now the pricing has shifted. And I think the, the safer growth stocks, which are the mega cap tech stocks, are more vulnerable because these, uh, you know, the high flying growth stocks have just been so thoroughly trashed. So at the end of the day, the opportunity remains in the value stocks. Look, if the Fed, this is the very important point, if the Fed was going to over uh, tighten and kill the economy, cyclical stocks wouldn't be outperforming. Treasury yields would be dropping. 
right? They're not. It tells in gross there would be a growth a rotation in a growth tax. That's not happening. That tells me as much as the t- discussion about how many times the Fed's going to raise rates, they're probably not going to raise rates as much as some of these predictions because the market is telling me to stick with the economically sensitive stocks. And I think that's where you want to be. Although a lot of people are looking at the yield curve, which is contracting at some of the narrowest levels that we've seen since the beginning of uh, the pandemic and saying, actually, recession risk is real. Growth scares are real. And frankly, we're not not seeing that baked into some of these stocks, which means that perhaps they are more vulnerable. How do you push against that? Well, that's true. I mean, yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. The yield curve yesterday came down a bit. We'll have to see. You know, it has come down and then it bounces back. Usually, as it gets closer to zero, it becomes a tougher, uh, more stubborn. Uh, we'll have to see. High yield spreads, investment grade spreads haven't blown out that much. So I'm watching. I'm still sticking with this. Stick to the uh, stick to the value trade. I still think you'd see a much bigger rally in Treasury yields uh, than we saw yesterday. If in fact uh, recessions around the corner, and then the other thing that. I would push back is what no one is, seems to be talking about is, Lisa, do you know that the estimate for the S&P is higher today than it was at the beginning of the year? Estimates keep going up. Yes, I understand they're not going up at the same rate they did before. But the fact is companies continue to do better than what was estimated at the beginning of the year. That's bullish. It's bullish, but we've got to do something here. Andrew, how much cash do you hold right now? I mean, with your track record, I think people really want to know that confidence is displayed by cash and portfolio. Yeah, Tom, I've heard you ask that question before, and I think it's a little, uh, you know, if when managers say, well, I don't like the market and I've raised cash, I find that a little misleading. Okay. Because at the end of the day, what is it if the market's down 10, 15% and you raise 5% cash or 10% cash, you're going to lose money, right? You're going to lose money. So, so it, you know, to suggest that if I raise cash, I won't lose money as an equity long manager, I think that's very misleading because at the end of the day, no one's giving me uh, investing in my fund to go to 80% cash. I'm a long equity manager. I hope to God I do better on the downside. Than the, than the markets, but I'm invested. So the only question is, how much will investors panic and liquidate? And we have seen redemptions the last few days. That Unfortunately, tragically, that's normal. Market drops in as much as I'm saying, hey, it's a buying opportunity. Yeah. People hit the panic button. And I suppose after today, we'll see inflows. Andrew, just to sort of tie this all together, if someone was listening to this interview, they might come away saying, all right, go all in on Pinterest and Twitter. Is that your, was that your point here? No, I don't think so. I think those stocks, uh, and not, not specifically those stocks, but just those stocks in general, they, the, the carnage is so great, I'm not sure. I wouldn't recommend people to run out and sell them. I think they could bounce. But I don't think uh, that's the big opportunity. I still think it's in the value names. But I, I just want to stress, I'm a core manager. I'm looking for the fast pitch. I still think it's in these cyclical stocks because we're going to get some more ugly inflation prints. And look, think about it this way, Lisa. Yesterday, 
financials out, the market got crunched and financials outperformed. Think about since the great financial crisis. Every time the market went down a lot, financials got destroyed. And they're not. They're actually leading in the downturn. That's very unusual. So I'm heartened to see that even in the downturn, some of the cyclical errors seemingly are leading. Andrew, That's very unusual. You're one of the best. We've got to go. It's good to catch up, buddy. As always, Andrew Slim in there of Morgan Stanley Investment Management. It was an essay in the Financial Times a number of days ago from Jeffrey Sachs of Columbia University talking not of appeasement, but how do we, after the debris of all this, move forward with Russia? The authority of Jeff Sachs here is truly, truly enormous and goes back to January of 1994 with his advisement to a Yeltsin regime that then changed to something different. When Jeff Sachs got off the airplane at JFK, that interview was shocking. Professor Sachs joins us, of course, of Columbia University this morning. Jeff Sachs, we all got Boris Yeltsin wrong. Do we get Mr. Putin wrong? Well, I think we've got our own policies uh, not right. And uh, we have been on a very provocative course of uh, really uh, NATO enlargement seen by the Russian side as encircling Russia, a point that has been made actually for more than 30 years, first by the Soviet Union, by Mr. Gorbachev, and then by President Yeltsin, now by Putin. We don't want to think about that in the U.S. We don't want to discuss it. Uh, we're dishonest because the West, uh, the leaders said clearly to uh, Mr. Gorbachev uh, and to Putin, uh, and I'm sorry, and to Yeltsin, uh, no enlargement to the east. Uh, then uh, Clinton decided, uh, because of the pressures uh, domestically and uh, from Central European countries, that NATO would enlarge. It was predicted by many at the time, including uh, Clinton's uh, own defense mm -hmm. secretary, William Perry, that this was a very right. dangerous and provocative move. It and now, uh, we're here. We right. need diplomacy on our side. All we're doing right now is right. sacrificing Ukraine in the name of a theory. Because if you talk to senior officials, they say, oh, there's no way Ukraine's actually going to join NATO. But then they say publicly, of course, Ukraine has every right to join NATO. If you put the two together, it's the worst combination for Ukraine's right. security. And Jeff, what's so important here is I've got Jeff Sachs, a liberal from Columbia, on the same page as Mearsheimer of Chicago, the arch-conservative Realpolitik. I mean, that is truly extraordinary. To steal a phrase from a younger Jeff Sachs, what is the diplomatic shock therapy to jumpstart a legitimate dialogue to come to a good resolution here? We need basic points agreed. Russia out of Ukraine, Ukraine's sovereignty assured, NATO not enlarging into Ukraine, the Minsk II agreement being implemented, four basic points. They're not so hard to come to the table, except actually the difficulty is on the NATO side. Well, NATO says, oh, everyone has the right to join, as if it's some great, somehow moral right to have a military alliance that increasingly 
runs up against the border of an antagonist. That's not a but, right. That's just imprudent is what it is. But Jeffrey, you're talking about diplomacy. Can we have diplomacy if people question whether Vladimir Putin is a rational actor? It's, it's a great question. You cannot test that theory if you don't have diplomacy. What Putin said in his speech a couple of days ago is we called for new security arrangements. The United States would not even discuss them. That is the truth. The U.S. said, first moment, NATO is open for enlargement. It is the right of Ukraine. Well, I don't call that smart diplomacy. Uh, I, and then when uh, the response is a failure, which was predictable, uh, we say, well, nothing could have worked. Uh, my view is we should try real diplomacy. It might not work. It might not work. But if you don't try it, you can't tell. And what's always true in negotiations throughout history is if you start with the premise that the counterpart is just a madman, if you start with that premise, you will absolutely end up in conflict. There's no way to reach an agreement on that starting point. Yeah. It may be true that the counterpart isn't interested in negotiation, but you can't find that out by talking to yourself. So you have to talk to the other side. Jeffrey, we're talking tactics right now and how to avoid some sort of altercation. But longer term strategy, you specialize in uh, sustainability. And I do wonder what type of investment would be necessary now in order to immunize both the U.S. and frankly, even more so the European economies from the vulnerability of dependency on Russia for oil and gas. The truth is we ought to be dependent overwhelmingly on our sunshine. That's the whole idea of the decarbonization agenda, which is a massive increase of solar and wind power to replace fossil fuels. Why are we in yet another fossil fuel crisis? By the way, this is where I entered economics. I won't tell you how many decades ago, writing about the oil shocks of the 1970s. We can get away from that. Because if we're relying on our own sunshine with solar fields or on our offshore wind or on our wind in the U.S. Midwest, we are not no. going to be suffering what we're going to be right. suffering right now. So that's actually a pretty straightforward uh, approach and the one right. we ought to be taking anyway. Jeff, in the time we've got left, and very importantly, you make the, the assumption here that the West is talking to itself instead of talking in a more formal diplomacy to the oddities of the Kremlin. The, Dem the Democratic Party and the liberals of the Democratic Party and progressives all agree are going down in flames at the next election. Whether that's true or not, we'll find out in November. Are the progressives in this nation guilty of talking to themselves and not reaching out for compromise with the Biden moderates or indeed the GOP moderates? I just think there's a lot of bad strategy going on. I am unimpressed with the diplomacy of this administration. I, I kind of, well, let's just say I'm unimpressed. And I'm unimpressed with the strategy on the domestic policy. Uh, Senator Joe Manchin, with whom I, I often do not agree, put forward a very reasonable proposition, raise taxes, use some of it to reduce the debt, use some of it for the social programs. That's a point of why can't now? the left meet the gentleman from West Virginia? It clearly, the, it broke for the left. How did it break for the left? 
Well, it has to start with the White House, frankly. That's the job of the president and the White House to coordinate. How you could have this situation and not reach an agreement is, is really disappointing, frankly, because there is an agreement to be had. Uh, even Senator Manchin sketched it out in the last couple of weeks. I, I, I said, OK, here we go. But they don't move. And it's really not right. so understandable, Tom. It's a good question. I don't have a good answer for it. Professor, thanks for being with us today. Jeffrey Sachs there, good, Columbia good University. Right now on Bonds and with an incredibly smart note and credit size is Winnie Caesar, Global Head of Strategy. And Winnie, I love what you say about capturing little bits of movement here where it's not about yield change, but it's trying to find in fixed income where price will go up. Where is that? What part of fixed income do I find little bits of price moving up? Uh, good morning, everyone. Thanks for having me. That's a great point. And what we've noticed is the belly of the curve in investment grade, you're actually now trading at a discount to par, which very rarely happens, right? I mean, usually in the investment grade market, investors are going to expect to be made whole at par. And you don't see these discounts outside of very stressed period of times all that often. And so we are in recommending that investors take a look at the belly of the curve. And then also in high yield, we've now mm -hmm. started to see bond prices trade at a discount to par. And that market is a much different right. market than it was in the mid-2000s. And really, the leverage to energy in that market is a fairly positive thing um, with all of the geopolitical risks and, and kind of Russia-Ukraine headlines. We've got some major jargon going on here, folks. CFA level one, the belly of the curve is identifiable. <laughs> but Winnie, seriously, how do you define the belly of the curve? Yes, I'm, I did uh, have the jargon speak. So we like the five to 10 year segment of the curve. So not really long duration, you know, that 30 year segment of the curve, uh, but just extending a little bit so you don't have a really kind of inflated front end portfolio into the point of curve where where you actually see a lot of new issue, which also helps when you're looking for liquidity and, and adding to portfolios and sizes. Winnie, taking a look at the broader credit complex, a lot of people say we are not heading toward another credit crisis by any means because companies have done such a good job of kicking the can down the road, of extending out the maturities, of getting their financing as cheap as possible. But are you starting to see that window for cheap financing really close up? What we're beginning to see is the opportunistic window shutting. So for those issuers who are really trying to aggressively address capital structures and refinance, I think that that window has closed. We've already hit the all-time low point in yields in both investment grade and high yield. And now it's about kind of picking your spots where those types of opportunities still make sense. The energy sector is one such sector where we think that refinancing is probably going to continue because you've had a bit of a later recovery in that sector for issuers and borrowing costs are still pretty attractive, all things considered. Now, overall, we don't think that the move in yields has become a threat to either investment grade or high yield quite yet. Companies can still borrow at very low levels all overall, and this kind of slowdown in new issue supply that's just a natural effect of volatility in the market is actually very constructive technically so, for the market. 
Winnie, there are two issues here, and this is something a lot of people have been trying to wrap their heads around. On one hand, you could potentially get a rates-driven sell-off in the credit market. At what point does that lead to some sort of corporate credit response? In other words, it's not going to affect these corporations because their financing is so cheap and they don't need more money. So at what point are we kind of immunized? Could you see a pretty big sell-off in the valuations of some of these credits, Mm -hmm. but even see uh, companies with very solid balance sheets? So what you ultimately need to have is this kind of spiral of rates volatility driving spread volatility, which drives really negative total return losses in portfolios. And then when investors go and look at their you know, Q1 22 statements and say, oh my gosh, why are my investment grade bonds down 7% this quarter? And then they start selling into that down market and you get this kind of spiral of spreads widening more and liquidity really gets cut off from the market. Now, given the amount of cash still on the sidelines, we feel fairly confident that there will be a clearing level where institutions step back in and say, oh, actually, you know, 10-year credit looks pretty attractive at three and a half percent. But we haven't quite reached that point yet. We were thinking three to three and a half percent in investment grade as the level where institutional investors would kind of step back in. But given the Russia-Ukraine headlines, I think that that's keeping people kind of sitting on their cash a little bit longer than we would have expected. Winnie, thank you. As always, good to hear from you. Winnie Caesar there of Credit Size. We've got unity at NATO, Tom. We've got unity with allies. That's the good news. The bad news for some people and where the criticism has come from, that those sanctions that they delivered, Tom, aren't strong enough. They're lightweight. Well, they're lightweight. And again, the key thing here is now the response from Mr. Putin. She gave us a wonderful brief a number of days ago. We're thrilled to bring back Tina Fordham, head of global political strategy at Avonhurst. Just thrilled she could be with us uh, this morning. Tina, I read the Putin speech you did uh, uh, with all your professional ability. And I mentioned, I believe it was yesterday, about Lenin and the Bolsheviks. You go even further back to the 18th century and Catherine the Great piecing together what Peter the Great uh, wrought. How does Putin go back to Catherine the Great? I think we should interpret those remarks as his aspirations, but, you know, without giving away my trade secrets, if I've been any good at anticipating developments with respect to Russia, it's because I'm taking Putin at face value. He is telling us what he wants. I think he's also moved, though, from, uh, I mean, I never thought he was a chess grandmaster, but from somebody tactical to somebody who's concerned about legacy. So that's what this is about. What do the Soviet people want? Would you suggest the Soviet people, excuse me, the Russian people, I misspeak there seriously, folks. Do you believe that the Russian people parse between Lenin and Stalin as he did in the speech or that the Russian people care about empire? So first of all, we don't really have very good sources of public opinion data um, about what Russian people think. They are concerned about what they hear on you know, Russia, Russia Today and, and other um, domestic channels, which is that uh, Russian speakers in those so-called breakaway republics uh, are being abused. Um, uh, and that's where the, the risk of a false flag incident comes in. Um, this notion that Putin is trying to project 
uh, saying that Ukraine is not a real country because of the borders drawn by Lenin, etc., has been masterfully deconstructed, by the way. If you haven't seen the speech yesterday at the United Nations from the Kenyan ambassador to the UN, um, he talks about how if we're going to revise the borders and reconsider the sovereignty of every country that came out of empire, um, where do we start? And that, that Kenya and other African nations, which of course came out of colonial borders, also largely arbitrarily drawn, don't want to go there. That's the risk of what Putin is talking about by denying the sovereignty, the right to exist uh, of Ukraine. And that's why this isn't about just these breakaway republics, Donetsk and Luhansk. Oh, if the global order doesn't respect, accept sovereignty and borders, then we have no order, Tina. I think most people would agree on that. What's interesting for me right now is just how effective these sanctions might be. Tina, they seem to be sanctioning again. The high net worth individuals, the oligarchs in and around President Putin. I wonder how effective that's going to be. I watched that National Security Council meeting that was broadcast on Russian TV. They didn't seem like the kind of individuals that were about to turn around and tell President Putin he should change course. Do you think that this will be effective to go after the people with money, the people close to President Putin? Of course it's not enough. Um, but let's also remember, in fairness to the sanctions drafters who have a very tough job, um, that they're also attempting to sequence the sanctions, right? So to start with one wave. Um, the EU sanctions have gone further, by the way, Jonathan. The EU has sanctioned all of the parliamentarians, um, hundreds of them in the Duma, who supported this move. But if there is a full-blown invasion, as U.S. intelligence seems to be warning, I also think Putin will go further. I don't buy what I'm seeing in some investment research that we're going to see a de-escalation. I see the opposite. We'll see another round of sanctions. So you don't want to... You know, you want to keep some powder dry in the event of, of a, a worse event. But what I think markets are not giving enough attention to, and I listened with great interest to the, the previous guest and the, and the bullishness, is the risk of a, of a catastrophic incident. We are in what Clausewitz called the fog of war, and Russia has nuclear weapons. Well, Tina, then what are you advising clients to do? I mean, how do you factor in that risk, that tail risk that perhaps in your view is becoming more real? Well, I think we moved from a tail risk a long time ago. And one of the things that I'm, I've been advising uh, my clients for many years now is not to think in terms of a base case and a tail risk, but rather plausible scenarios. So we need to test uh, stress test portfolios <clears throat> against that. I don't disagree with the immediate conclusion of market participants that, um, if anything, a geopolitical risk incident um, may you know, keep uh, rates lower for longer, but not... Not yet. Uh, I think the more worrying point really um, is about supply disruptions and, you know, the international system, how does it impact uh, investor portfolios? We are, Russia has given us a very clear signal that it is not coming back into the fold, that it doesn't really care about sanctions, and that it is not a reliable partner. And in my 25 years of watching Russia, th this, is, this is a real change in, in trend. We're not going back. Tina, wonderful to catch up with you. Some really strong words there. Tina Fordham of Avonhurst, the head of global political research and strategy. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television 
each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.